Good morning. How are y'all doing? That was wicked good. That was so good. Uh, My name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thanks so much for hanging out with us and joining us for worship this morning. Man, I got a couple of things for you. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our missions moment. Uh, this is just an opportunity where we kind of inform y'all, not kind of, but we inform y'all on what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, but before I jump into that, um, I got to actually clear this. Before I jump into that, uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to uh, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Go ahead and open it to that. And uh, we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to work our way through uh, chapter 3, verse 5. If you were here with us last week, hope we're still friends. Uh, and uh, uh, we're, we're titling this sermon series, Asking for a Friend. But before I jump into that, I'll let you guys open or load your Bibles. Let's talk a little bit about the mission moment. Part of my job is to invest uh, not just resources, but time into church planting. Uh, one of our goals in the future is to plant a church out of Storehouse McAllen. That's something that we seriously look forward to. But in addition to that, we also love partnering with like-minded churches, uh, whether that means uh, coaching opportunities for church planters, uh, or in addition to that, supporting church plants. One of the church plants that we support is called Christ Redeemer Church in Moreno Valley, California. It's a similar context to that of South Texas. The lead pastor's name is Martin Medina. They uh, planted earlier this year. I told you guys a little bit about them. They're also, a link to their website is on our page. Uh, Martin was so uh, generous and kind enough to make a quick video, kind of giving y'all an update on how Christ Redeemer is doing. Because here's the truth, right? The tithes and offerings, our generosity doesn't just go and pour into the health and the life of our church, but that generosity also flows out so that we can support other church plants and planters as they endeavor and labor in the gospel to plant churches in their context. And so this is one of them. This is just a clear update. Over the past couple of months, y'all have had the opportunity to meet other uh, pastors. You met Al Johnson from The Well in uh, San Antonio. We partner with them. Uh, you guys met uh, uh, Josh Guerrero, who's about to plant Refuge Community Church in Southeast Austin. And this is Martin Medina from, uh, from uh, Moreno Valley, California. Hi, I'm Martin Medina, and I'm the pastor of Christ Redeemer Reformed Church in Moreno Valley, California. We just want to thank you guys so much for being a support to us in our uh, early church plant. And honestly, the Lord's been doing an amazing work um, through the church. Obviously, the ordinary means of grace, preaching, prayer, and the Lord's Supper have been joyous for us to partake in. But he's also adding to the church. And we've had uh, over 10 baptisms for the local church. And seeing the city that hasn't really had a local church now enjoy one, um, I say solid local church has now been able to enjoy one and, and have fellowship and people are gathering in homes and there's small groups going on and it's just so cool to see so much life in such a young church and we hope the Lord continues to bless us but again this is um, really in many ways and, and thanks to what you guys have done for us and being able to, to help us buy curriculum for the Sunday school and help us to buy books for the small groups and, and things of that nature so we're excited 
see what you know the future holds for us and our continued friendship with you guys at Storehouse. And we can't thank you guys enough for the the investment you guys have made in us. And it's truly uh, being used to the glory of God, if I can say that honestly. So we thank you guys and hope that we can continue to work together in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. Here it is. I w- like, I would say, sir, like, start clapping. But before you start clapping, like, check it. Like, that's your generosity going to plant a church somewhere in Southern California where people are hearing the gospel, salvations are happening, baptisms are happening, people are getting discipled, more and more people are coming to know Jesus. The community in Moreno Valley is being affected by their presence right at the center of the city. So, yes, you totally should clap because that's your generosity. So, good. thank you all so much for what you're doing. Church planning is certainly a big deal. It is a huge labor. And uh, man, I'm just so proud of us that we could be involved in plants like Christ Redeemer. With that being said, if you've just uh, come in, if you're running late, uh, grab some coffee. Again, we're going to find ourselves in the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8. Go ahead and open or load your Bible. Uh, We're going to go all the way through chapter 3, similar to last week. Going to take chunks of it. While you're turning there, if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to connect with you. Fill out a connect card. It's on the chairs before you. If you do not have a Bible with you or you do not have one at all, there are Bibles available for you in the chairs as well. That is our gift to you. Really excited about this series. Uh, If you saw the graphic or the one right behind me, it's called Asking for a Friend. Now, the reason we titled it Asking for a Friend is because the Song of Songs is really a book about a man and a woman who are pursuing one another in the context of marriage. And what that means is that in the light of their pursuit, they are also enjoying one another. Uh, One of the things that we talked about last week as a brief review, we looked at what uh, what God has to say about sex. We saw that uh, sex actually is not God and sex is not gross, but God says that it is good. God says that it is a gift and it serves multiple purposes. If you weren't here last week, go ahead and listen to that sermon. It's on the website. But uh, in short, what we discussed or what we walked through was that sex exists for pleasure. It exists, it, it exists to, to potentially have kids. It exists for intimacy and oneness and unity, for protection and faithfulness for covetedness uh, between one man and one woman in marriage. With that being said, we're going to dive into our time. And what I want you to know about the Song of Songs, and I'll always try to give you a brief review, what I want you to know about the Song of Songs is that it's a collection of Hebraic poems. And so they're not necessarily in uh, in chronological order. Uh, One of the things that we did look at last week was in the first verse where it says, the Song of Songs of Solomon's. In other words, these are his greatest hits. Okay, And so we're going to be looking at all of these poems. And so because they're not written in chronological order, sometimes we see them in the context of marriage. Sometimes we see them in conflict. Sometimes we see them before they're married, which is where we're headed today. So what I'd like to do is pray for our time, and then we're going to launch in. I hope you all are ready, because I know I am. I'm really looking forward to this. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. God, we thank you for this opportunity to dive in and examine your word. And as a result, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in the hearts and minds of all those who are here. 
Holy Spirit, that those who know you would come to know you better, that those who don't know Jesus would come to know Jesus, that those who are married would know you better or get to or, or come to know you, and as a result, that Christ would be at the center of their marriage. That those who are uh, single or those who are in dating relationships, God, I pray for holiness. Uh, I pray for purity as a result of what you have done for them in Christ. God, would you uh, guide us and lead us in our time of worship through the ministry of your word and prayer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all ready? Okay, here we go. This morning, I want to change up the pace a little bit, okay? I actually want to begin by addressing those who are single or maybe those of you who are in relationships. Maybe the relationship just started and so all the butterflies are going. Maybe you've been in a relationship for a while. I want to address you first, and a large part of our time is going to be geared towards you. That being said, those of us who are married, don't tune me out. Here's why I would say don't tune me out. Number one, right? The singles and those in the relationships have had to, have, have had to listen about marriage a ton. So you can stay tuned in, right? In addition to that, my hope is that God in his grace and in his mercy would convict us of sin that we may or sin that we have committed and dismissed in the name of love and then the name of eventual marriage. You know what I'm talking about where maybe uh, before you were married, you were living in sin and you're like, well, we're headed towards marriage anyway. And so you dismissed it. So I hope God would convict us of that. So with that being said, here we go. Those of you who are single, those of you who are maybe in dating relationships, I'm going to say something that uh, maybe you'll say an amen to, or maybe you don't want to say anything because you don't want anybody to know, right? Dating is tricky. Oh my Lord, it is. All right. I will, Emma. I will. I just broke this stand. <laughs> Let me fix this. Dating is tricky. Particularly when Christians start to date, it's all sorts of weird and awkward, right? And if, uh, if you're one of those like, oh, it wasn't weird. It wasn't awkward. Fine, bro. You're cool. Uh, you're one of the few. That's awesome. Not talking to you then. But for everybody else, it's kind of weird and it's kind of awkward. Don't act like it's not, right? And it's weird and awkward for a couple of things. Thanks, Izzy. It's weird and awkward for a couple of reasons. Number one, here's, here's one of the reasons. You don't have to take notes, just listen and be entertained. But here's one of the reasons as to why it's awkward. It's awkward because one of you is going to say, well, what does it mean? If someone shows interest in you, if someone starts to like, I don't know, maybe court you or maybe start to text you or like all of your pictures at 12 a.m., right? Like when that starts to happen, you're like, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? This individual is pursuing me. Does it mean marriage? Is it the future? What's the purpose of this? Why is this person pursuing me? You make it complicated and you know who you are. You make it complicated. So that's the first reason. The question always pops up of, well, what does this mean? And you get in your head. The second reason it's kind of weird and awkward and sometimes we make it complicated is because we begin to think about, particularly in the beginning of the relationship, and this isn't necessarily bad. We'll talk more about this in a, in a bit. But we begin to think about boundaries, safeguards, and filters. That's not bad. That's good. The problem is that we start looking toward methods rather than the perfecter of our faith. We start looking at other things to do the sanctification for us. 
as opposed to us actually submitting to God's will. So is dating wrong? I don't think so. I don't think it's wrong. It's, I just always have a lot of questions because it's usually concerning the intentions of both people that are questionable. The Bible doesn't necessarily address dating. I could be wrong, but the Bible doesn't necessarily address dating, but it does address the corruption of our hearts and our need to exercise biblical wisdom and godliness. The Bible doesn't necessarily address whether or not you'll know if he or she is the one, but it does address our need to exercise biblical wisdom and godliness. The Bible does, however, call us out when we become witty about taking shortcuts or cutting corners, you know, trying to find loopholes. Well, this isn't technically sin. And as a result of our poor judgment, God calls us to repent and addresses our need to exercise biblical wisdom and godliness. The question isn't so much about whether or not you should date or whether or not you can date. Rather, it's are you spiritually mature enough to exercise biblical wisdom and godliness? That's where it starts. Whether you're married or not, whether you're dating or not, are you spiritually mature enough to exercise biblical wisdom and godliness? See, because we can dive into the practical, right? We can talk about intentionality and community and accountability, but all of that really stems from a place of wisdom and godliness. And so again, whether you're in a relationship or not, the question is, do you exercise wisdom and godliness in the ordinary? The reason I worded that way is because Sometimes what tends to happen, and this goes back to Christians making things complicated, sometimes we begin to think about like, right, wisdom and godliness, I need to exercise that when I'm in a relationship. No, you exercise that now. And if you're in a relationship or if you are married, you exercise that now. Waiting doesn't mean sitting still. If you hear anything, hear this. Waiting doesn't mean sitting still. It means sanctification. It means sanctification. So let's dive into the Song of Songs. Here's what I want to do, because we're looking at a large chunk of scripture. I'm going to take pieces, tell you what's going on, right? And then we're going to park, I think it's in verses 15 to 17 for the majority of our time. But here we go. Beginning in verse 8. So the woman starts. Right? She usually starts. She usually speaks the most in this, which is very, very cool. Here's what she says. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Here's what's going on. You could look at this from like a, maybe a, a Shakespearean tell or, or a romantic story where she's on the castle, right? She's on the mansion or whatever. Uh, in our day, it would be your apartment complex balcony, right? You'd be up there, 
right? And so homeboy, right? He's a stud. He's a stag, right? He's doing what he's supposed to do. Maybe that means he has a job. Maybe that means he's paying his bills. Maybe that means he doesn't live at home, right? And so he's coming, he's running to her, and she sees him. She sees her stud, right? And so as he's coming, he shows up and she goes on to say, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Here's what's going on. He sees her. She sees him. What's in between them? A wall. We could chalk that up to boundaries in a relationship, right? I don't know, maybe after a certain hour, you don't stay home alone or you don't stay with the other person by yourselves. Uh, you don't text after a certain while. You only hold hands. You don't kiss. Whatever. Whatever the boundaries can be in a relationship, you can look at it like you can look at the wall as those boundaries. But here's the thing. There's a wall. They both acknowledge that there's a wall. And in a moment, she's going to exercise wisdom, and he's going to follow through with that wisdom. Because check it, as good as that wall is, homeboy can go around it, he can climb over it, she can come down the stairs and walk outside and join him. But they don't. Christians make it complicated when it's like, we have all of these boundaries, and you look for loopholes. The boundaries sometimes just exist so that you can please your community, not because you ultimately want to please the Lord right? I'm not knocking boundaries. Man, I'm not knocking like uh, accountability software. I'm not knocking any of those things. But oftentimes we're looking for loopholes. Oftentimes we're begging the question, well, how close can we get to the line without it being sinful? You, you crossed it when you asked that question, right? You're like, no, I didn't. Yes, because Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful. Not that, I guess, right? Like, don't, don't act dumb. Verses 10 through 14, she goes on to say, my beloved speaks to me and says to me, so she's quoting him, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Homeboy is like wooing her. He's complimenting her. He's like, babe. And then he like says something, right? Verse 11, for behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. He's saying, hey, winter is over. Spring is here. Spring is when love is in the air. You've seen Bambi, right? When Thumper was like, hey man, she's got eyes for you. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, you're Twitter pated, right? That's exactly what he's saying. Right? He's like, hey, winter is gone. The harsh season is gone. Spring is here. Love's in the air. Right? He's like whistling to her. And he goes on to say, the flowers appear on the earth and the time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our lands. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He says, man, you're like a dove. Here's what he means by the whole dove and clefts on the rock thing. Doves uh, typically don't really have a good uh, defense against other predators. And so what they do is they hide in the clefts uh, in the nooks and crannies of, of like mountains and cliffs so that predators might be able to see them, but they can't actually get to them. And so what he's saying is you're like a dove, like you're so close, but yet you're so far away. He's being so romantic, 
right? <clears throat> and she replies, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag. Can't make up her mind, right? On cleft mountains. Here's what she says, or here's what's going on. Homeboy shows up. He's calling to her. He's complimenting her. Spring is here. All of these things are going on. And essentially he's saying, I want you to be with me. Why don't you come down and be with me? And then we can run away and we can get this started. And what does she say? Not yet. She doesn't say no. She doesn't turn him down all harshly. She says, not yet. Right? And she exercises some really insightful wisdom, and we'll talk about them in just a moment. When she's talking about the vineyards, let's go to verse 15 briefly. Catch the foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. The word vineyards in the Song of Songs is always referencing something. So last week we looked at there was a literal meaning of vineyards. And then she says, I haven't kept my vineyard. She was talking about her body, her physical appearance. Here she says, our vineyards are in blossom. She's talking about their relationship. She's talking about their relationship here. <clears throat> that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. I want you to keep that in the back burner because we're going to address that in just a minute. And she says, catch the foxes. In other words, catch the things that bring destruction and that ruin our relationship. Like that's her response. She, instead of saying like, no, she's like, hey, not yet. She exercises wisdom. Catch the foxes that spoil our vineyard. But then she, assur- excuse me, then she assures him. She goes on to tell him, hey, but nevertheless, my beloved is mine and I am his. But not yet. But not yet. And so she exercises wisdom. Right? She's not pushing it. And as we go into chapter 3, we do see this section of pursuit. She has a dream. Let's just dive right into it. She has a dream in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, she says, On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loved. So clearly she loves him. She's not just turning him down to play hard to get. She's saying, not yet. We're not going to do this. But here you see her actually pursuing him. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. And so she's saying like, man, relationships, part of this, like part of pursuit, it's risky. I'm going out into the streets. I'm going out at night, but man, whatever it takes, because I want to find my love. I sought him not. I sought him, but found him not. The watchman found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found him whom my soul loves. So she's like chasing him. She's seeking after him. She's pursuing him. And then she goes on to say, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. In one section, she exercises wisdom, and he follows through with that. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But then at the same time, pursuit isn't a bad thing. However, pursuit is grounded in godliness. Pursuit is grounded in wisdom. She goes on to say in her dream that she finds him, and she takes him back to his mom's house, or to her mom's house. Kind of weird, but, you know. Whatevs. 
right? Takes him back to his mom's house. This is in the dream. Takes him back in the mom's house and she says, into the chamber of which I was conceived. She's saying like, I'm taking him to my parents' bedroom. It's weird, right? However, here's what's going on. As she's taking him back, she's taking him back to a place where there was privacy, where there is intimacy, because not only is the goal or not only is the desire pleasure, the goal here is family. Like she's thinking about a ton of things. She's thinking about a ton of things in the context of her marriage. So let's talk about pursuit. And if you're married, if you're in a relationship, this applies. Let's go back up to verse 15. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For vineyards are in blossom, okay? Pursuit requires three principles. I'll give them to you, and then we'll talk about each one, or we'll examine each one. Pursuit requires awareness. Pursuit does not mean property. And pursuit requires wisdom and godliness. So let's talk about the first one. She says, catch the foxes. I told you earlier that when she's talking about the vineyards and the context, she's talking about their relationship. She's putting it on the table. And she tells him, I need you to catch the foxes. In Texas, we have this like horrible, like feral hog problem, right? Like hogs run rampage, like hog season is always in season. You can hunt them all the time. And the idea is that they're constantly jacking up people's farms and crops. They go on the golf course and they ruin the field and all those kinds of things, right? This is a much nicer way of saying it. She's saying, man, our relationship, our vineyard is being spoiled by foxes. I need you to catch those foxes. And so, as a result of pursuit requiring awareness, here are my questions to you. First one is, what foxes are sneaking into your relationship? What foxes are sneaking into your relationship? And is there a culture of safety for you to actually ask that question or address it? Whether you're married or not, are you able to ask that question because there is a culture, something has been cultivated, it's a culture of safety has been developed. In my experience, I want to give you, both as a pastor and in my own failures as a husband and a father, I want to give you four things that I see. These aren't the only ones. I want you to look at four things, four foxes, if you will, that begin to spoil the relationship or that begin to spoil, yeah, the relationship. The first one is skewed priorities. This is a better way to say it. Idols. In my experience, I've seen two great idols. Kids and work. Both of them, really good things. Both of them, gifts. Both of them, God calls good. Yet at some point, I've seen them become the only thing. You see, in a marriage... If God is not at the center, then your foundation is already off to a rocky start. If Christ, the work of God in Christ, is not the foundation, something else will be. And as a result, that foundation gets placed on sand. And so I've seen parents make it all about the kids. 
kid, act, uh, you know, like uh, sports and classes and extracurricular activities, everything that they want, anything that they need. I've seen parents d- uh, devote time, energy, and devotion into the kids. Now, is that bad? No, it is not bad. However, when that becomes the center and foundation of our relationship, at some point, at some point, it's going to crack and break. You could look to the distant future because at some point your kids are going to move out of the house. And when your kids move out of the house, I've seen a husband and wife look at one another one morning and realize they don't know anything about one another because everything became about the children. You became really, really good roommates. The other side of it is if all this love and tension and devotion goes towards the children, what ends up happening is that everything rotates or everything goes around the kids, including the health of the marriage, which inevitably leads you to be just being really good roommates. On the other side of it, I've seen work. Man, work is good. God says it's a gift. But I've seen individuals, myself included, just dive so much into the culture of work and into the necessity of work that everything else gets drowned out in the name of provision. Everyone else gets drowned out in the name of provision because you just got to do it and you're the only one that can do it. And eventually, the marriage has foxes. Another one is whether or not the gospel even exists in the relationship or in the marriage. Oftentimes, we talk about our value and our heart for the gospel, particularly when it comes to Sunday mornings. But oftentimes, what tends to happen is that the gospel doesn't take place in the ordinary parts of our lives. You know, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, just in the context of the home. That when it comes to relationships, maybe you're not married yet, what you end up doing is saying, someone else sanctify me rather than the Lord. And then when you get married, you're saying the same thing. You're only using marriage as an excuse. Now that we're married, sanctify me. And so the question is, does the gospel even exist in your relationship and in the context of your home? Look, man, my job is to preach and teach the word, not to disciple you at home. The next one, physically present, but emotionally absent. You know what that means, right? Maybe something else has your attention. You're at home, you're doing the things that you should be doing, but you're just emotionally gone. You've emotionally abandoned uh, your wife, your kids, responsibilities that you have at home, physically present, but an emotional absent individual. And finally, pride and arrogance. Maybe I've listed those three, or as I've listed those three, you might say, man, we've never had that. The gospel exists in our house. Uh, We don't have any idols. Uh, Man, I'm, I'm emotionally present as well as being physically present. Praise God. Maybe this doesn't necessarily apply to you. That doesn't mean you don't need to evaluate. Because oftentimes, couple will be like, we're great. It's good. It's awesome. We have crosses on our wall. It's all good. And really, your relationship, or in particular, your marriage, is founded on pride and arrogance. And you will be humbled. So how do we counter that? How do we catch the foxes, so to speak? 
I got one thing, then it just sprouts into a bunch of others. I would say through community. You see, in community, there is safety because others are speaking or ought to be speaking into your life. Some of you don't like that because you don't want people speaking into your life or you only want them speaking into this part of your life because you don't want to talk about the rest. At our church, uh, the, the, the biggest context or the biggest demographic, there you go, the biggest demographic, and I love this, um, is like in a nutshell, young married families, right? Uh, young and married families, uh, less than 10 years of marriage between one to three kids trying to figure it out. Oh my gosh, I'm drowning. That, that tends to be uh, our largest demographic. But that's not our only demographic. We also have a demographic of, of individuals and families who have over 10 years of marriage or just ha- like pack a ton of wisdom because of life experience. In community, when these two demographics, when these two peoples collide, there is a beautiful representation. There is a beautiful uh, demonstration of discipleship in the gospel. And so, those of you who are older, whether it's, man, just in life or even in your marriage, I want you to listen to Paul in Titus 2. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfast. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Okay? Here's one of the most dangerous things. I'm talking to the, to the older gentleman. Here's one of the most dangerous things. A young dude without a map or a compass. Here's the second one. A young man with a map or a compass and has no idea how to read it. Older gentleman, you know some of those men are in our community. And sometimes you preach the philosophy of go figure it out rather than coming alongside of them to teach them how to read that map and read that compass. In short, one of the most dangerous things is a young man with no direction. Paul is saying it's your responsibility to invite them into your life, to teach them. That's going to cause an inconvenience, yes. What else? Your role is to disciple them. Your role is to equip them. And the women aren't uh, excused from this either. Paul goes on to say, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Women, ladies, your role is to invest and disciple and come alongside some of the younger women not only by affirming their emotions, but by feeding them the word of God. That's what Paul is saying. Train them up in godliness, which means you must be a woman of the word. It is our responsibility. It's a beautiful picture of discipleship and community because wisdom then meets with passion. And so both grow. It's not just one into the other. Both grow. 
if we are going to create awareness in our pursuits, if we are going to catch the foxes, then one of the best ways for that to happen is in the context of community. And it's going to require vulnerability. And it's going to require hard questions, but it also is going to require encouraging conversations. It's going to require, I suppose, an inconvenience, but that's how discipleship happens. Number two, pursuit doesn't mean property. Pursuit does not mean property. Look at verse 16. She says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Right? Your pursuit of one another is a sermon of the gospel. So what do you preach? What do you preach? Your pursuit is a sermon. What do you preach? Those of us that are married, do you preach that your spouse is your property? Notice what she says. My beloved is mine and I am his. It's a giving of one another to one another. Completely. It is as Genesis 2 said that the man will leave mom and dad, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then they were naked and unashamed because they gave themselves to one another for one another. Is your spouse your property? Do you treat your spouse as your property? Do you give yourselves to one another? And if you want a picture, you're like, well, what does that look like? The giving of everything is a loud and beautiful demonstration of the gospel. That God entered into human history through the man Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into human history. Lived the life that you and I cannot live. Died the death that you and I deserve right? Died the death that you and I deserve and offers the free gift of salvation that you and I cannot earn. It doesn't even end there. He dies, is buried, and on the third day is resurrected. He ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and then he imparts the Holy Spirit upon believers. He imparts the Holy Spirit of believers. If you want a beautiful picture of complete generosity, look to the cross. Marriage is a reflection and a demonstration of the gospel. Where God the Father gave everything. Not only sending his son, that would have been enough. But he sent his son so that his son would eventually die and reconcile man to God. In marriage, you give everything to one another for one another. If you don't, if it's just one-sided, check it. That's the definition of abuse. It's not, when we look at abuse, it's not just violence committed. But abuse is using someone to a bad effect or for a bad purpose. And so if the giving of one another is really just one-sided, then by definition, that's an abusive relationship. Not only would I say, man, repent, 
your sin and your arrogance, even though it's already making everybody uncomfortable. Now, now because you're evaluating it, just like I've had to evaluate ours. And if you're not married and there is that, you're in an abusive relationship, get out. Get out of it. It doesn't have to be only violence. Though if it is, get out. I'd love to talk to him. James and I are always looking for those opportunities. Get out. So if you're married, is your spouse your property? So repent. Come talk to us. The next one, not the next thing, but the next thing, for those of you that are not married but in relationships, here's what tends to happen when we're looking at, you know, pursuit is not property. Here's what tends to happen. And those that are not in married relationships yet, you often skew the roles. Here's what I mean by that, all right? Started with the men on the first one. I'm going to start with the women on this one, okay? Ladies, let me just, I'm just going to tell you what's up, right? This is you in a dating relationship. Hey, man, I'm being honest. I love y'all. He is not your husband. <laughs> he is not your husband. So stop telling him to lead like he is. He's not your husband. In addition to that, because homeboy isn't your husband, you don't have to submit. And it goes back to that definition of abuse. If that is present, get out. Gentlemen, everybody's like, oh no. <laughs> Gentlemen, she is not your wife. So stop playing house. Stop being stupid. Stop playing house. Because here's the thing, and I talked about this last week. I'll dive into it a little bit more. Oftentimes, when you see, I'm talking to the men, oftentimes in relationships, when you start playing house, you start crossing those lines, you start making excuses, you're like, well, how far is sin, really? You start making all of these decisions. Not only do you get called out, you get put on the spot and say, man, when are you going to pursue marriage? All of a sudden, that's too much of a personal question. Well, I don't know about marriage. That's something that's a little bit too much. Really? Because then technically you're, in, you're abusing the woman that you're with. You're using the woman that you're with. You're indecisive. And what scripture says is that you are double-minded and unstable in all your ways. <laughs> really what you do when you preach that is that you love your sin more than the Savior. And you're willing to take someone down with you. You're willing to take someone down with you all under the altar of love and eventually we'll get married. You don't even know because you can't make a decision. So get out. Number two, that was, that was number one. She's not your wife. Number two, reflect godly character. Read 1 Timothy 3 and ask yourself, men, am I this man? Am I this man? Because when you read through 1 Timothy 3, there's only one skill, and that is to teach. Everything else is godly characteristics. And I love it. I love it because when I, when I do walk some guys through it, I get to say like, hey man, here's some godly characteristics. Well, I don't like it. Well, then you got beef with the word, not with me. I'm not making up this list. 
Are you that man? Pursuit does not mean property. Number three, pursuit requires wisdom and godliness. This is her final response. She says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle. Go back into the woods, right? Or a young stag on the cleft mountains, right? Pursuit requires wisdom and godliness. Man, homegirl exercises wisdom and godliness. Rules and boundaries and filters, they're not bad. I'm not knocking them like I said earlier. The problem is that we rely more on that than the work of God in us, than the work of God done for us in Christ. Sometimes we want to get so practical that we lose sight of wisdom and godliness. And we allow everything else or we allow everyone else to sanctify us. In other words, this app, that person, this community group, they're going to do the sanctification for me. Rather than begging for wisdom. Listen to Hebrews 5. This is what the writer says, beginning of verse 12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. He's a little bit frustrated. And he puts it on the table. He's like, hey, some of you have been walking with the Lord for a while. You should be teachers of this. Instead, what you need to do is go back to the basics. And he continues, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He's like, you haven't grown up in maturity. You're still a kid. You've been walking with the Lord for five years, and yet you've grown up six months. He continues, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That godliness requires the ministry of the word and prayer, and we are exercising right? That's where the word God, godliness comes from, the Greek word. I'll tell you about it later. Jonathan and I were talking about this the other day, right? The word godliness, the Greek word for it sounds like gymnasium, because what do you do in a gymnasium? You train. If we're going to grow up in godliness, then we ought to be trained through the ministry of the word and prayer, that we ought to endeavor into ordinary means of grace. And some of you are complacent in being kids. Some of you like that milk because someone else is getting it for you. As opposed to those who are mature, man, you're cooking, you're grilling, you're feeding yourself, good job. Praise God. Is your love for God greater than your love for sin? Godly pursuit begs for wisdom. Begs for wisdom. In James chapter one, that's one of the things he says, if anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Some of us are complacent in not asking for wisdom. Instead, we either think we can handle it on our own, and that could be because of guilt and shame, or arrogance on part of, well, I got this app, and I got this friend, and I got this thing. As long as we don't do these other things, you want to set up all sorts of boundaries rather than actually growing up in godliness. And you wonder why you're still a kid. 
So as a result of all that practical work, how does that then culminate to the gospel? How does that culminate into the pursuit of God for us or towards us? The entire conversation about pursuit begins with the love of God for his people, an unfaithful bride. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The language is very, is that similar to Song of Songs. Here's what he says. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Sounds very similar. My beloved had a vineyard on very fertile hill, on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. The person who is at work in the vineyard is God himself. And he's putting all this effort into it. He is pursuing the vineyard. He's putting effort into it. He's putting work into it. He's putting love and care and time. And this is what happens. But it yielded wild grapes. It yielded wild grapes. The story doesn't end there. Even though he's saying, man, the the wild grapes are the people of God. It doesn't end there because we know that he continues to pursue his people in spite of their unfaithfulness. Jeremiah 31 says that he has loved us and called us with an everlasting love, and it is he who has kept his faithfulness. And so when it comes to the pursuit of God, here are three encouragements for you. The first one is intimacy with God. And I use that word on purpose intimacy with God. Are you like the deer from from Psalm 42 that reads, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Intimacy with God requires thirst for God. It's not just coffee and Colossians. It is a thirst for God. It is a hunger for God. When we were in 1 Peter earlier this spring, Peter talks about that. Peter talks about uh, an infant who is crying because they are so hungry. Are we like it where we're just crying because we want to hear from God? We want God to meet us where we're at in the word. Intimacy with God. Do you thirst for your relationship with God? Number two, longing for God. Because his pursuit for us began before time began, Are we pursuing contentment or are we pursuing complacency? We talked about this about two weeks ago. Whether you're single in a relationship, you're married, whatevs, I want you to pursue contentment. Contentment is finding joy in the sufficiency of Christ regardless of your circumstance. Regardless of your circumstance. Those of you who are married, are you content in what God has done for you in Christ? And are you allowing that? Are you taking that into the hard parts of your marriage? I didn't ask you if you want to talk about practical stuff. I am asking you, are you willing to take the gospel into the dark parts of your marriage? Those of you who are single, let me just tell you, right? It's not like contentment in Christ and then marriage. 
Marriage does not complete you. It doesn't complete you. And I can't stand up here and guarantee you that you're going to get married. Because what if you don't? Are you content in Christ? Are you content in what God has done for you in Christ? And are you taking that into the depths of your soul? Because much like we looked a while ago, right? When it comes to uh, those who are married, do you view your spouse as a property? Those of you who are in relationships, is it abusive? The other thing when it comes to singles is that oftentimes singles, you can be very entitled. I've done all of the right things. I'm doing all of these other things. And I go to church and I read my Bible and I take care of myself physically. Great, awesome. Keep doing that. Praise God. But the heart is one of entitlement and pride and arrogance. And that's not to say that if you repent of that, that you're going to get in a relationship. But I promise you, God will be glorious and victorious. That much I can say. Are you pursuing contentment or are you pursuing complacency? Complacency is where you're indifferent and sadly you become numb to sin. And finally, trust in the promises of God. Man, we could walk through all that again, the practical stuff and all that jazz. And some of you might have even heard it in in the sense of like, man, that's great, that's encouraging, but man, you don't know my story. I've screwed up a ton. We've screwed up a ton. I got a lot of, whatever you want to call it, baggage in my history. And I hope this encourages you. The work of God in Christ redeems the sinner. The work of God in Christ redeems the sinner. That does two things. Number one, through Christ, through Christ's work on the cross, he buys you out of sin's bondage with the currency of his own blood. That means if you turn to God, if you turn to God in Christ and you repent of your sin and you place your trust in him, his blood buys you out of sin's bondage that you are no longer a sin or a slave to sin, but you will now be his. Number two, as a result of that, not only does he buy you out of sin's bondage, he also pours constantly his grace over you. Grace is unmerited favor from God toward sinners. And it's not just something that is stagnant. It is something that transforms you more into the image of Christ. That your heart can be renewed, your mind can be transformed, and that you would be made whole in Christ in spite of where you come from. Waiting isn't sitting still, y'all. Waiting is sanctification. That applies to you if you're single, if you're in a relationship, and if you're married. It is sanctification. Some of you need to sit still in the sense of you need to chill out. There's some entitlement going on. Some of you need to have conversations today. Not tomorrow, today. All of us, however, need to repent of our sin. We must trust in the one who has been pursuing us from the beginning and we must be sanctified to be more and more like Jesus for his glory and not our own. Let's pray.
God, you have created us to uh, be relational creatures, whether we're married or, or not. And sometimes I think we can complicate it despite our life stage. Sometimes I think we complicate it. God, would you give us wisdom so that we would exercise godliness? Would you give us wisdom so that we would be convicted of our sin and thus repent of our sin, placing our trust in you? God, would you take the message of Song of Songs and as the writer of Hebrews says, penetrate our hearts with it, discerning where our heart is at, addressing the condition, the real condition of our hearts. God, may we not make excuses. May we not make empty promises like, I'm going to change and it'll be different tomorrow. May we be actually repentant and take the steps necessary to grow up in godliness. Holy Spirit, do a work in us this morning. Do a work in us so that we wouldn't only just repent of our sin, but that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus. That those who don't know Jesus would find redemption this morning. And that those who do know Jesus would come to know him better as a beautiful reminder of the redemption we have in Christ. And I pray that we would honor you, not just with our, with our lips, but that we would honor you with our bodies that we would honor you with our hearts and our minds. Lord, and as we move into a, a time of offering tithes and offerings, Holy Spirit, would you continue to do this work in us where you are transforming us, where our standard of generosity is the cross. Therefore, we give generously, faithfully, and cheerfully that we would relinquish the control we think we have all for your glory and our good. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.